Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who, is ra- who has raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The story is told of a man born in 1906 to an aristocratic German family. Gifted profoundly, he chose to study theology and graduated with a doctorate at the age of 21. I think all of us are slackers. He developed many international partnerships and even worked for a few years with a German congregation in Barcelona. Shortly after this, he went to the U.S. to study for a year, but found his experience there to be shallow and uninspiring. However, he was impressed by the African-American churches he worshipped at, noting their zeal and seeing yet the social injustices that they endured. We're speaking, of course, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is famous for the way that he resisted the Nazi regime. Keep listening. It says, He returned to Germany in the early 1930s, and using his platform as a pastor and lecturer, he spoke against the Nazi regime from the onset of Hitler's rise to power. And when Hitler's power became so great that he declared the church must swear allegiance to him, Bonhoeffer instead developed the confessing church. This confessing church instead declared that Christ was the head, not Hitler. By 1943, Bonhoeffer was helping Jews escape to Switzerland when the Gestapo arrested him. He continued, however, to influence others with his writings and pastoral heart even after capture and imprisonment. Biographers guess that sometime between the ages of 12 to 14 is when he devoted his life to Christ. His call to the people then is as timely as it is now. In his most famous work, The Cost of Discipleship, which was written behind bars, he says this concerning grace and the centrality of Jesus. The preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, it is a cheap grace. It's a grace without discipleship. It's a grace without the cross. It's a grace, catch this, without Jesus living and incarnate. Our text this morning begins with, just as you received Christ, so walk in him. Bonhoeffer had received Christ. 
He had walked in him. He had been rooted up in him. He had been built up in him. He had been established by an unshakable faith. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the way of Jesus as the essence of our walk. And for a moment, I just want in your mind's eye to consider Jesus, who was thankful for his identity. Only the night before he was killed, while he was hanging with his disciples at the Last Supper, he has this powerful high priestly prayer. And he talks about, I thank you, Father, that you and I are one. It's powerful. So Jesus is thankful for his identity. He rejects what's on offer from Satan out in the wilderness in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And instead, he receives the fullness of God. And we're going to look at how those things play out for us. The essence of our walk is the way of Jesus. It's so helpful. So walking thankful. The first couple of verses just say this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So being being rooted and built up and established in him is protected by gratitude. We need to grasp that as a central reality. How many people do you know, self-included, who just aren't thankful? It's an epidemic. And Paul gives the remedy. And so let me just ask a question. I like participation, so feel free to like shout out answers. How did you receive Christ? Anyone? How'd you receive him? As a child. As a child. How else? With joy. With joy. With hope. As a gift, what? Through faith. Through faith. We could just go on, but in reality, none of us received Christ with our chest puffed out and our head held high, did we? That's not how you come to Christ. <laughs> and so Paul starts with, just as you received Christ. So he's saying, let's just cut the legs of of autonomy and freedom and the self being the best version... Let's just look at Jesus. Let's start there. That's what Paul says, just as you received him. And I think, I I noted a few things here in humility. There are many in this room who could probably point to this reality of an army of intercessors who were praying and you didn't even know it. And that's how you received Christ. You had no idea. You probably still don't. Everyone who was praying for you to get you to that place of submission to him. Can I just say this? Please, never arrive in your awe of Jesus saving you. Never get to the point where it's humdrum. Never get to the point where it's like, I don't know, I was like a sinner, kind of saved by grace. You were a wretch. So was I. And here's Christ coming to me on offer, giving me eternal life through his sacrifice. I want that all the time to be my centerpiece. And Paul says, that's how you come and walk in Jesus. You're walking thankful. Never arrive in your awe. And then he gives these words. He says, rooted and built up and established. When he says rooted, it's a past tense thing. 
Listen to Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. He says this, So that Christ may dwell, that means live, take up residence, in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's being rooted. And then he says this idea of being built up. Listen to Acts 20, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, and I love this, which is able to build you up. It's an active, present, ongoing thing that Paul is talking about. And it says, and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. That's what it means to be built up. And then in Hebrews 13, 9, we see what established means. It says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. That term strengthened is the same word in the Greek as established. And what he is saying in Hebrews, as well as we see here in Colossians, is to be established, to be like a settled reality, is this understanding that God's grace keeps me in my best moments and in my worst moments. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it awesome that God's grace keeps me in all of that when I am like totally living for self and I return and I repent and and I regain that awe? Isn't that what I want? Isn't that what you want? To live in such a way to be so captured? You know, nine times in this passage alone and 18 times overall in the book of Colossians, you hear phrases like in him, because of him, from him, through him, by him. The very centerpiece of all of Colossians is Christ who is Lord of creation. Marvin Vincent, the Presbyterian minister from the 1800s says this, the whole upbuilding of the church, the person and the people, proceeds within the compass of Christ's personality, life, and power. It's all about the fullness and completeness that Christ has on offer for us. In another one of his works, Letters from Prison, Bonhoeffer actually says this, fulfilled life is possible in spite of unfulfilled wishes. Fulfilled life is possible in spite of unfulfilled wishes. So truth and practice, then, what are we really after here? I would just say that regardless of what you may be walking through, and all of us are going through something, regardless of what you may be walking through, you can be assured and secure in the identifying love of God, that you are rooted and that you are built up and that you are established in the faith. And so if you were to say, well, how do, I, how do I make that an ongoing reality? What Paul says, let your awe of God drive your gratitude. Like just take pause and just, okay, God, what are you up to? How powerful is it that you saved me despite what I've done? Let your awe drive your gratitude. So we've been looking at this idea, and now Paul says for his next warning, I want to ground you in your Jesus walk, so to speak, by rejecting emptiness. It says in verse 8, very simply, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according 
to Christ. You see, apart from Christ, human wisdom and spiritual forces produce emptiness. It's just simple. Paul had many things to say about emptiness and walking apart from Christ in all of his letters, but some of the most poignant come in the book of Galatians. It says in Galatians 4, verses 3 and 9, these words. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But now that you have come to know God, this is probably one of my favorite lines in all of Scripture. Because it, I, can, I can picture Paul penning this and then stopping and then adding this, this almost like parenthetical thought where he says, uh, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? He's saying turning back to anything less than what Jesus offers us will produce an emptiness inside you that is gaping. And how do they do that? Through philosophy and through elemental spirits. Now, to be fair, Paul is easily one of the greatest philosophers ever. So Paul is not saying, hey, we don't like philosophy. Philosophy just means, the term literally means in the Greek, the love of wisdom. I love wisdom. I love me reading some books. I love podcasts. I love to grow in my knowledge and sharpen my skills. But Paul's warning is this. If one loves wisdom that is not Christ-centered, look out. Because Christ, you see it in verse 3 earlier in the chapter, Christ is the sum of all wisdom. It kind of reminds me a little bit of what Paul says to Timothy, who's dealing with some people who all they want to do is talk about the next best thing. And, and all they want to do is dive into the, the latest arguments theologically and spiritually. And Paul says this in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 7. They're always learning, but they're never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That's because their anchor is not really there. So the love of wisdom, it... it it's dangerous in some ways, and I'd just put it like this. False teaching, this is where in Colossians and also in Galatians and again in Second Timothy, this is where Paul is addressing this concept of, of false teaching. And false teaching does not come in waving banners. There's not a jersey that says, I'm false. There's not a banner that says, look at me, I'm telling you a lie. In that regard, the best lies are mostly true. Have you discovered this in your own life? The best lies are mostly true. It's a small bit. Look at how Satan did it with Eve and with Adam. Look at how he played the same cards with Jesus. Not just in the desert, but in the garden. The best lies are mostly true. It actually sounds quite plausible. Heard that last week. Verse 4 talks about this concept of what's plausible. It sounds reasonable. That's like a really good idea. The second way that emptiness presents is through the elemental spirits. Now, some translations say elemental spirits. Some say elementary principles. Essentially, the best way to look at this, I think, is that it refers to those spiritual forces that Christ dealt a decisive, victorious blow at the cross and out of the grave. That's it. 
So maybe simply it would be to put it this way, what man dreams up or what demonic spirits distort apart from Christ is the definition of emptiness. That's what happens. And so I want to anchor here for, for one minute to sit and think of Jesus. How did Jesus reject the emptiness and embrace the fullness? And it starts with when Paul says, don't let anybody take you captive. It starts with understanding that false teaching, demonic activity, um, I mean, that's like a whole forum in itself, and we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but like right now, probably not the best time. It's going <laughs> to take too long to unpack. But let me just do a real simple 30,000-foot view. That demonic activity and false teaching always does two things primarily. One, it always attacks the person of Jesus Christ, which is to say it talks about things like divinity, humanity, redemption, salvation, condemnation, sanctification, all those things that Christ does, it will somehow attack or distort. That's what you can look for. The second thing that you will see with false teaching and with uh, demonic activity is quite simply that it will attack the believer's identity in him. Why do you think Paul says in him like 18 times throughout the book of Colossians? You think by the end the Colossians would be like, I don't know, Bob, what do you think he's talking about? (laughs) He's talking about being totally rooted in the only reality that matters, Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4 verses like 20 and 21, he's like, hey, uh, that's not the way that you were taught the truth, assuming that you were taught the truth as the truth is in Jesus. So you depart from that, there's going to be some major problems. So you may be wondering, well, like, how do I avoid captivity? I really don't want to be someone who's imprisoned. How do I avoid that? Well, like Jesus. Simple phrase that I have, that I, an internal phrase that I'll say often is first things first and first things forever. First things first and first things forever. And that applies when you're looking at this understanding of fighting off the enemy. I don't have some newfangled, unbelievable, deep spiritual strategy. I've got Christ and I'm walking in him and his spirit is empowering me. And I am reminded daily of the love of God. Okay? And so first things first, first things forever. But you're probably like, well, I need a little bit more. Can you help me? Yes. We'll go through some questions here. Because I think questions are great. It's kind of what I'm known for. So let me toss out a few. Um, We should regularly be asking ourselves and those in our community this simple question. How's your walk with Christ? Now, I want to give a caveat here. Because answering the question, how's your walk with Christ, by saying anything about my quiet times or my church attendance or what I've done is a little bit like being asked about my marriage. Hey, Doug, how's your marriage? Well, this week I took out the trash and I left for work on time and I came home at the appropriate time. And then I also picked up the kids from school like I was supposed to do and I paid the bills. And someone's just looking at me like, I didn't ask you that. I asked you, how's your marriage? To which I would do well to respond well, actually, this week has been harder. We've been at odds over a decision in parenting that we just can't quite work out, and that's difficult. Um, I've not 
spent the sufficient amount of time with the Lord that would strengthen me to be a man of grace and humility toward my wife. So I've acted toward her in ways that are unhelpful and unkind and cutting. That's how my marriage is. That's an example, right? So when someone says, how's your walk with Jesus? Well, I did my quiet time and I went to church on Sunday and I came on Wednesday night to the prayer meeting and there was an additional worship night on Sunday night. I also made that. I didn't ask you that. I said, how's your union with Jesus? Well, actually, I'm finding it hard to surrender. I actually like control. I like to white knuckle it and I think somehow he's gonna bless that and and I'm just, make sense? So here's another question that might be helpful. Have I embraced emptiness by giving authority to someone or something other than Jesus? Like, what does that really look like? That means that I need the approval of someone so deeply, so badly, that it will totally wreck me if I don't give it. I've given them authority. If I, if I give Wayland the authority to basically talk and tell me who I am in Christ, if, I, if his opinion matters, or if he hops on his social media accounts, like Wayland generally does after the service, and he, and he posts like, that was a lame-o sermon, and I'm like crushed, and I can't get off the couch, and I'm, I have effectively said, here, Waylon, here's the authority over me. The question then for you is, who are you giving authority to? That's not Jesus. That's not affirming the message of Christ, the sacrifice, the redemption, the sanctification. Who have you given authority to? And what sort of havoc has it wreaked in your life? That's what we're after. See, this is where Paul begins to turn his attention next. We want to understand it's not just about the rejecting of something empty. Because then I'd just be empty. (laughs) I wouldn't have the fullness like the Ephesians 3 passage talked about earlier. So we want to understand then what's next. It's this idea of receiving the fullness. And I think most simply the way that I would put it is we are full in the full one. We are full in the full one. We don't need other things. Remember what I said about false teaching and demonic activity, that they always attack the person of Jesus, like his work, his humanity, his divinity. They also always attack the identity of the believer. So the question is, well, then how do we get filled? How do I make sure that I'm filled? And Paul tells us. In verses like 9 through 12, he really attaches us to this idea of a new heart and a new way of living. With a new heart, he talks about this idea of circumcision, super comfortable topic for all of us, okay? Uh, But he, he talks about this idea of the cutting away of the old and exposing the new. That's what it is. And if you really want, like, the, the, the clearest, most succinct definition, or maybe not definition, but like application of it, Romans 2, verses 28 and 29 says this. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. You're like, wait a minute. The whole Old Testament talks about like this being an outward and physical thing. And God's like, yeah, but here was the spiritual point I was getting at. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. That means not by your obedience and your perfection. And then it goes on to say, his praise is not from man, but from God. 
My deepest connection and union is this idea that my heart has been made new, not because I did something, but because Jesus did, by the power of his spirit. So Paul says you get a new heart. The second thing he brings up is this idea of baptism. And if you look at Romans 6, 6, it says, we know that our old self was crucified, murdered, put to death, done away with, with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Or Paul's words in Colossians, don't let anybody take you captive. So a new heart and a new way of living. But listen to these descriptors that Paul uses in verses 13 through 15. Dead, made alive, forgiven, canceled the record of debt, disarmed. That's one of my favorites. I love this. And the message Eugene Peterson translates it this way. Think of it. All sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, the old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. Listen to this. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. You're like, whoa. We don't really have a concept of what that's like, but in ancient Roman times, a a victory march was just that. It was, let's get the line of captives behind us, the ones that we have destroyed utterly, and we're going to strip them of their clothes, of their weapons, of any identifying marks. They're just going to be nobodies with naked bodies walking through the streets. At the front, we're going to have the general who led it. At the end, we're going to have the other general who assisted. So we're going to do, in a few ways, we're going to totally emasculate them and we're going to totally exalt the military leaders that's the metaphor that Christ, that Christ is uh, talk, or that Paul is talking about when he says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities he took away anything that would be of consequence against you to cut you down and then he paraded them through the streets in utter abject subjection they had to do what he did they had to follow after what he said That's power. That's awesome. That's what Jesus has done for you and for me. Sam Storm says it this way. Spiritual authority is in the name of Christ. The balance of power rests with us and the ultimate outcome has been settled in our favor. We do not fear those who have suffered, I love this, a decisive defeat Our faith is in God. So, back to Bonhoeffer. Here he is. A brilliant mind. He goes to the U.S., studies for about a year, can't quite stomach the fact that it just seems shallow and mushy and not strong. But he notices that the African-American congregations that he's worshiping at have a depth of conviction in Christ. Is it any wonder that they were enduring external pressures and hardships that made them cling to Christ more? And somehow that turned Bonhoeffer's like, oh, whoa, that's crazy. So it primed the pump. He goes back over the pond, and he's back in Germany now, and he's seeing the atrocities of Hitler. Can you just imagine with me? What would it be like if Bonhoeffer was afraid somebody was going to post a bad review online? 
What would it be like if Bonhoeffer didn't know his identity? If he was like this waffling, pansy sort of a guy who was like, I just really need you to like me. What would it be like if he wasn't rooted and built up and established in the faith? What would it be like? Would we have these stories? We wouldn't. And in reality, here's what's so amazing. In the spring of 1945, Bonhoeffer's name was linked with an old plot against Hitler, and his execution was ordered. He was hanged on the 9th of April, 1945. Now catch this. Just two weeks before the camp that he was at was liberated. He was two weeks from the finish line, two weeks from seeing Hitler commit his own death and then the whole regime caving in on itself. Everything that he had lobbied for, he, two weeks away. And he's hanged. His last recorded words, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. So just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So as we wrap up in your uh, bulletins, I have uh, truth and practice, kind of some invitations or suggestions for this week. I want to go over those just real briefly. Um, they won't be on the screen, at least I don't think so, mainly because I make my PowerPoints late. I'm not very prepared, so sorry. Um, I'll just walk through the suggestions just real briefly. Number one, and these are, these are invitations. Christ never twists your arm, does he? He invites you. He welcomes you. And so look at these, and if one of them lands great, awesome. Go for it. Step into it. First one is put aside a few minutes each day this week to stand in awe of God's saving of you in Christ. And I gave some suggested passages that you could dwell on. One of the things that you could do is just read that passage and then go find yourself in a quiet spot and choose a word from that passage to anchor on. And just spend like five minutes in silence. And every time your mind wanders to your to-do list or your kids or your day at work, just call that word to mind. Redemption. Freedom. Grace. And then just dwell on that and let it produce awe in you. Second one is to, it's more of a question. To, to what or whom other than Christ have I given authority? And then the follow-up to that, is there some practical way I can put Christ on the throne again? And I think it's important because if you think of the attitudes and the behaviors of your heart that have deformed you away from Christ, you need to be reformed back to Christ. Every act of sin and disobedience is a deformation away from the image of God that we're made in. And so every act of obedience and submission to him then is a reformation in a positive direction. Hopefully that makes sense. And then finally, the last one is this. And I think this is helpful because it just kind of forces us to think. Uh, write out a prayer based on Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Put it in your own words. Act like you're a Bible translator and start like, what's he meaning here? What's he saying? And then write it in a sentence or a phrase or two that really stands out to you. And consider sharing that with someone like in your life group or in your home or at work or a family member just for encouragement.
So the way of Jesus is the essence of our walk. Let me pray. And if you need prayer and you want to stay after, feel free. But otherwise, there's lunch through these doors to the all-purpose room. We'd love for you to stay and get connected um, and just enjoy the company of others. So, Father, we're so grateful for everything that you do. We rest because you worked. You did the hard work of going to the cross in obedience to your Father. And we just stand in awe of what you're doing. That you are continuing to grow us and shape us and move us toward you. So as a congregation, Lord, we just want to say thank you. We praise you for who you are and who you call us to be, what you name us. And we leave here um, ready to accomplish all that you intend this week for us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.